0: Just ask you to turn in your Bibles just to Psalm thirty-four. Again, we're looking at this theme, we're looking at a series in overcoming, and today, as been mentioned, we're looking at overcoming fear. So Psalm thirty four from verse four. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamp around those who fear him, and he delivers them. We thank God for his word that he gives to us today to encourage us and to lead us and to guide us. Let's just come and pray. Father, we thank you that your word is a word that touches into every area of our lives. We thank you that you are all-sufficient, that we're weak and we're needy. But, Father, if we turn to you, if we open our hearts to you, you are able to give us all that we need. So we do this now and ask you to come and be among us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, as we've said Today in our series and Overcoming, our, our subject is fear, overcoming fear, and thinking about this and, and looking around, I came across a, a great example, I think, in the Bible of what we today normally would call a panic attack, you know, shortness of breath, heart pounding, cold sweats, lightheaded, a sense of being paralysed by, by fear. Now you can tell I've been there, can't you, as I share that, put me up above 20 feet, Without solid uh, ground around me or support, until you'll find that you'll see a bona fide panic attack. But here's the, the biblical example King Belshazzar was having a great banquet when suddenly what appeared to be like the fingers of a human hand appeared before him and wrote a message on the wall. Now, that scared me a bit, I've got to say. Listen, though. To what Daniel 5 verse 5 and 6 tells us about Belshazzar's reaction. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. Picture that, I think that's what you call genuinely being scared out of your wits. And then for a more up-to-date uh, fear experience, well, I had this one once a while ago uh, on a tape. That was in the days of the tapes by Bill Hybels. And he was on an international flight traveling from Bangkok back to the United States. And they were just up in the air and were traveling through a, a pretty serious electrical storm when suddenly that message that we all dread hearing came out over the tannoy, telling them all to get into the crash position. It was an automated message that again and again repeated. This is not a test. This is an emergency. And all of this was repeated in two or three different languages, including Japanese. And as Bill Haibo says, just hearing an emergency message in Japanese is enough to scare you, never mind the content of the message itself. Well, you can imagine the atmosphere that this caused in that pain, that plane. There was shouting and screaming, yelling, going on all around. Then suddenly, there came the ping and the voice of a real live stewardess. Oops, sorry. We pushed the wrong button. Hope we didn't alarm anybody. The rest of the story shares, among other details, the fact that within minutes there was a queue 30 deep for the toilets. And let me tell you, I know a few people who would be in that queue. Well, let me get back to to serious business. When fear threatens to overwhelm us, Or when a niggling, ongoing fear is there in the background eating away at our life. Is there anything we can do about this? Is there anything we can do to overcome fear? Well, let me, to begin, just make uh, something very clear here. And that is that, that some fear should not be overcome. There is such a thing as constructive fear... There are times and there are situations when far from fear being a problem, when rather to feel a sense of fear is very much a healthy thing. For instance, when we're out on an icy road and fear of losing control of our car makes us cut down on our speed, that is healthy, both for us and anybody else who happens to be out on the road at the same time. Or if we see a fire beginning to get out of control, then fear, which leads us to either deal with the problem or get help to deal with it, that is a much more healthy response than to stand around and look at the pretty flames and just stand and warm our hands at it. And if we've got an important exam or an important job to do at work, then that little tinge of anxiety that makes us prepare better, makes us work that little bit harder. That is no bad thing. But the Bible, you know, tells us that there is a, a fear that is more important than any other. And this is a fear that is both necessary and constructive. And it is fear of God. Now, obviously, for the Christian, this fear isn't about any kind of dread or or sense of of being frightened in the presence of God. And and maybe the best way to understand what's what's meant by fear of God in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, is to look at at different instances and circumstances where the same underlying word that in some cases is translated fear is because of the circumstances and context translated in a slightly different but a still legitimate way. For instance, in Ephesians 5 21, Paul says there, submit to one another out of reverence, that is, alternatively, fear for Christ. And Peter in 1 Peter 2:18 says, Slave, slaves, submit yourselves to your masters. With all respect. That is alternatively fear. So you see fear of God. Means giving God the kind of reverence. The kind of respect that he deserves. Because of who he is. And that if this is genuine. Will then affect the way that we behave. And the way that we live. But for the non-Christian though. Fear of God has got a particular edge. For Jesus, while one of the most common phrases to be found on his lips as he sought to love and care for needy men and needy women, while one of his most common sayings was, fear not. Yet in Matthew 10, verse 28, this is what Jesus says. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So you see, if we don't respect God enough, if we don't revere God in the way that we should, enough to make us accept the sacrifice of Jesus for us, the fact that he gave his perfect life to pay for all our sin then one day, instead of knowing God's life, God's love in us, instead of knowing God being with us forever in heaven, which is what God wants for us, instead of that, as a result of our choice, we are going to be separate from God's life and from God's love forever. You see, that's hell. And the thought of that should fill all of us with a sense of dread. And if it does that, then it is both necessary and constructive. But not all fear, though, is constructive. You no, know, there is such a thing as destructive fear. And we're talking about the kind of fear that just eats away at our life. The fear that, that makes us constantly feel as if life is dangerous, life is ominous. The kind of fear that takes away our joy in life now and that casts a dark shadow over any hope we have regarding life in the future. But this is not the way that God would have our lives. And certainly this is not the way that life should be for the Christian. For as Paul and 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, as he says there, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, that is, of fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self discipline. You see, God doesn't want us to live lives dominated by fear. And we don't have to. If we are ready to face up to our fear, to take on what causes us fear in our lives, then God can enable us and will enable us to defeat that fear. How should we do this, though? How can we go about this? The first step I think we need to take is we we need to seek to understand our fear. We need to understand, if you like, its origins in our life. And, and psychologists, etc. who study that, this kind of thing, they've established that, that most, not all, but most of the fears that cripple and debilitate people, that most of these have their origins in the early life experience of someone's childhood days. For instance, just one example, polls, etc., that have been conducted in, in this country and in the United States, they've established that most people are terrified of public speaking to the extent that at a funeral... The majority would rather be in the coffin than up front leading the service and giving the tribute. And you see, when people have been questioned a bit further about this, well, it's been found that in most cases, nine out of ten cases, this is actually because of something that happened at school. You know, they had to read something out in class. They had to do a, a book report or something of that kind. And as they've been doing it, someone's made a hurtful comment. There's been a round of sniggering in the class. And since that time, speaking in public has filled them with fear. And then, of course, we've got people who were ducked underwater as a child and are now terrified of anything to do with water. People who have had a scary experience with a dog who now won't go near them. People who've had insecure childhoods and who now live in constant fear that something's going to happen to sweep their security away and who drive themselves and their families crazy by their fear and the precautions it it leads them to take. Then there are people who've had problems in a relationship, maybe in childhood, but maybe at some other significant stage in their adult life, and they felt let down and betrayed. And so you decide... Because of a fear of the same kind of thing happening again that you're never going to let anybody close to you in life. Or with a bad experience with a Christian. A bad experience at church. Maybe as a child, some adult at church lets you down or perhaps tries to bully you into faith. Or you maybe see perhaps that there's a Christian there who isn't, living the way that they should. You see that there's a gap between their life, the way they actually live, and their faith, the faith they confess. And that, that hurts you. It troubles you. And so you're determined it won't happen again. And as a result, you stay away. You make that decision. You're going to stay away from God and anything to do with church or faith. Now we could go on and on giving examples here. But I think it's more important that we face up to the fact that what we're talking about here is a frequently observed pattern of behavior, human behavior, called avoidance. That is, we try to avoid the things we don't like. The things we'd rather not face up to, the things that we find unpleasant, that cause us fear. Now I say that worked for me at school when it came to Sago, Tapioca and Semolina. But it doesn't work with life's big problems. Problems that we try to avoid don't just go away. Rather, they get bigger and bigger until we face up to them and deal with them. And those who've studied this subject in in depth, they say that the, the power of fear diminishes once we trace it back to its origins and we see it for what it is. We recognize where it stems from. Why? I'm afraid. And once we do that, we need to reflect on that and then determine that we will not allow our lives to be ruled and tyrannized by fear, by thought patterns that should never actually have the power that they do in our lives. And I believe that's part of what Paul's getting at. In, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, where he says there, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You see, the idea there is that we have to fight, that it's a battle. We've got to fight to retain control over our mind, over our thought life. And if we have let control go in this area, then we have got to fight To regain it. But you may be finding it hard at this point to understand why this should be so, how this could be so for a Christian. You know, a Christian fighting to retain, never mind regain control, might be finding that hard and more to the point perhaps. If this is possible, so then how, as Christians, can we regain control when our minds have been overwhelmed? By fear? Well, I think the answer to that first question really lies in a a clear understanding of just exactly what the spiritual position of the Christian is. For you see, all of us at one time were spiritually dead and subject to the one that the Bible calls in Ephesians 2 verse 2 the prince of the power of the air. We're all subject to him at some point in our lives. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God delivers us from Satan and he makes us his children, citizens of his heavenly kingdom. And scriptures like Colossians 1.3, Philippians 3.20 make this clear. So now you see the situation is, though Satan is still ruler of this world, yet He is no longer ruler of our lives. For in our hearts now, Jesus Christ is king. Jesus is Lord. However, for as long as we live on this earth, we are still in Satan's territory where his power is real. I just want to quote directly from a writer, Neil Anderson, who's written some great books on the the spiritual conflict that's faced by the Christian. But this is what he says. Satan will try to rule our lives by deceiving us into believing that we still belong to him. As aliens in a foreign, hostile kingdom, we need protection from this evil, deceptive, hurtful tyrant. Christ is not only Provided protection from and authority over Satan, but He has equipped us with the Spirit of Truth, the indwelling Holy Spirit, to guide us into all truth and help us disarm the evil one's schemes. But and then He goes on: even though our eternal destiny is secure and the armor of God is readily available, we are still vulnerable to Satan's accusations, temptations, and deceptions. If we give in to these, we can be influenced by Satan's wishes. And then he adds, and if we remain under his influence long, long enough, we can lose control. Now, I've got to say at this point that I, I disagree with Anderson for a while. I think we can be heavily influenced, heavily influenced Uh, by Satan as Christians. I wouldn't want to use that kind of term. I wouldn't want to talk in terms of coming again wholly under his control, losing control. For that, to me, would seem to suggest that Satan can overturn the lordship of Jesus Christ in a Christian's life. And that I could never agree with. But, you know, while for me lacking clarity, I think, in the way he expresses it, Anderson does, in a sense make that distinction uh, a little bit later on because he goes on later in his book that ownership is never at stake, however. We belong to Christ and Satan cannot touch our basic identity in him. But as long as we are living in this body, we can allow ourselves to be vulnerable to all his fiery darts. But you see, However, we describe it, the big question here is: how, as Christians, can we regain control when the devil has got us at that point where we feel overwhelmed by fear? then how can we turn back the tide of his influence? We well, see, I believe that having understood our fear, we then need to expose. The lies. We need to expose the lies that the devil consistently stands behind. John 8.44 tells us that the devil is by nature a liar. That's his tactics. He is a liar and the father of lies. See, that's the way he promotes fear within us. By getting us to believe lies. Lies about ourselves. Lies about others. Here's an example that I came across of how it could happen. That is, think back to the time when you and your significant other started going out. Some here will need a good memory, but think back. So how does, you know, well, here, here we go. I missed a wee bit out. He says, I'll phone you tonight. He says, I'll phone you. In George's day, it was carrier pigeons, but, you know, we're coming up today. He says, I'll phone you. But, The phone call never comes. How does destructive fear work? Does it say the lazy so-and-so has forgot again? No, you don't say that. Not when you're going out together. That comes after you've been married for a couple of years. (laughs) No. Destructive fear says a bit is dead. He was in an accident in his car." left to die on a sad, lonely road. I'm sure as he died, he called out my name. Let's not be sexist, though. Let's see this from the other angle. The young man sitting by the phone. What does he think? He thinks, she's dumped me. I'm history. She's probably right now out with that new guy at work she mentioned. They're probably planning their wedding. Even now they're naming the children they're going to have. Now you see there's a technical term for this kind of thinking. It's called catastrophizing. You've no idea how many times I practised saying that. And it, that was my worst case. It's always imagining. The worst case scenario. Every situation, you think of the worst thing that could happen. And when this happens, this leaves someone's life ruled by an iron rod of fear. And when this happens, you can guarantee that the evil one is behind it. Other more down-to-earth examples of this kind of process or say a Christian's in a job but the place where they're working in is a a corrupted, toxic environment business practice is unethical there's a whole atmosphere that's just blatantly dishonouring to God and that's pulling them down and so they think that for the sake of their spiritual well-being they decide for the sake of my sanity and integrity I've just got to get out of here I've got to start looking for another job but then Thoughts begin to swirl around in their minds. Maybe another job wouldn't be as secure as this job. Maybe if I moved, I would end up losing that job, and I would be out on the street then, no job, no home for myself, and me and my family starving to death. And God wouldn't be there for me. He wouldn't do anything to take care of me. That's catastrophizing twice then there's the person who knows in their heart that it's time for them to come to jesus they know who he is they know what he's done for them they're convinced and they want to respond to him they want to give their life to him they know he's worthy of it and deserves it but then at the the back of their mind there's this little voice that niggles away become a christian And that's the fun gone out of your life. You'll become a grey person. You'll become a non-personality who always has to be told by others what they should do or maybe more accurately, what they shouldn't do. You see, it's all lies. It's lies for if you do what is right before God, then you can trust that while life won't perhaps always be easy, yet God will always be there for you. And as for life as a Christian, in some way becoming less, becoming kind of grey once you trust in Christ, as for losing your personality when you come to Him, that is nonsense. The only things that God keeps you from are the things that will hurt you and harm you. And life doesn't become less. It never should. And if it does, there's something wrong with the way we're living the Christian life and the life becomes complete and fulfilled and whole in christ jesus said that me, john 10 verse 10 i have come that they may have life and have it to the full so we've got to expose the lies that lie behind our fears then, having understood where our fears are coming from, the origins, and having understood the way it's operated in our lives, the lies and deceit that are being used to maintain the grip of fear upon us, then I believe what we have to do is diffuse our fear by exposing it to the truth. And you know, there's something I heard once at a Bible conference that's, that's just stuck in my mind over the years. It's just always been there in my mind, in my thoughts. And it's where a preacher said that instead of listening to ourselves, which is the, the big emphasis today in our self-centered, self-obsessed, pamper yourself, look after yourself society. Instead, what Christians learn to practice more of is speaking to ourselves. You see, we've got to learn more and more to speak the truth to ourselves. We've got to learn to speak the truth of God's word into our lives. Because how relevant and how effective this is in terms of dealing with fear and with the situations in life that cause us fear. I think that's at least part of what, what Paul's saying in Ephesians 6 in the famous passage on the, the armour of God. Where he he speaks of taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now at times when we do that, we'll find something. We'll find a word from the Lord that just speaks precisely right into our situation. A a word that, that just cuts away at the root of whatever fear is binding us. You know, we may have that sense within us that we're worthless, that we're nothing, that we're failures. But then we need to turn to God's Word and find in God's Word the passages, and there are so many of them that tell us that we are precious to God and we're precious to Him because of who we are, not because of what we are or what we've achieved, but that God loves us. We're not failures, We're not worthless. We're precious to God, so precious that He sent Jesus to die for us. We've got to learn to come to the Word of God, to find in the Word of God that Word of truth that speaks God's love, His purpose, the hope we have in Christ, the fact that God will never let us down, that He will never let us go. Those verses we we read earlier in Psalm 34. We need to read words like this to us. I sought the Lord and He answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, not this strong man, not this man who's got it all together, not this man who's got no problems. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Don't listen to the voice of the evil one, the one who wants to pull you down, make you feel you're worthless, who wants to make you useless in God's service. Don't listen to the lies he speaks. Listen instead to the voice of God. The voice of God that tells you that you are so precious to God that he sent Jesus to die for you. The voice of God that says that God has a purpose for you and that he will be with you. He will walk with you. He will strengthen you. Listen to God's voice. Let's come to him now. Father, You know your people who are gathered here before you this morning and you know the difficulties that some of us are facing and we don't diminish these. We don't look down upon them. We don't think that they're nothing because they're real and they can become huge in our lives. And the devil is the master at keeping the people of God down. He fires those darts at us. But Lord, as the darts come, help us to put on that armor of God. Help us to listen to what your word says and help us to put our faith in that, not in how we feel, not in how the lies have made us feel. Help us to put our trust in what your word says about who we are in Christ. That we are your children, we are your sons and daughters, we're part of the family of heaven, precious and loved, with a glorious purpose now and an incredible destiny in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us today to hold on to the truth of who we are in Jesus. This we pray in his name. Amen.